Hello, and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 19. Over the course of interviews for the first 20 episodes for Talking Additive, there is one topic that has come up time and again so often that I have been looking forward to covering it in more detail here with you listeners today. This is the story of how 3D printing catches fire within a company, going from being nothing more than another machine that a few staff members use in the ordinary course of their work, to an approach that the company as a whole engages in strategically, one that is transforming everything from how engineers think their way through technical solutions to how product designers can swiftly pivot a design to suit unpredictable changes in component sourcing, to how design firms communicate with their factories, to being the 21st century duct tape and machine shop in one that concrete floor manufacturing engineers use to modify patch and improve equipment to meet ad hoc requirements and even improve safety. Why do some companies treat this technology as too precious or even dangerous and don't let their staff make use of it, while others dive in with both feet and standardize the use of 3D printing across a global enterprise? More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within manufacturing and on the factory floor? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 19th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. I have chatted for hours and hours about this topic with Job van de Sende from Eriks, Matt Terosian from Jabil, Haley Ann Friedman from M. Holland, and Cody Cochran from Azoth. But I could only find the opportunity to barely scratch the surface of this topic with them within our modest length episodes. But this changed when two of my past guests demanded that I dedicate more time on talking additive to directly addressing this topic. Matthew Forrester from L'Oreal, Talking Additive's first guest, reached out to me thrilled that the momentum that the L'Oreal Additive team continued to maintain, even with the additional changes of COVID-19, offered to return to share some of the best practices that have made a difference for their teams, their suppliers, and their cross-industrial allies in aerospace, food and beverage, medical, and more. He will join us in the second half of our episode today, so please stick around for this opportunity. The other guest was even more forthright in his request. Joris Peels from 3dprint.com, drawing on his AM consulting career, insisted that Talking Additive should have a dedicated episode to encourage those newly adopting 3D printing to consider tactics to fan those first flames of 3D printing within a company, not only to help listeners save time and heartache, but because this route championed also by Matthew in his interview, helps you discover the real value for 3D printing within your company by widening the stakeholders for who is using, testing, and dreaming about AM within your company. 
the everyday challenges that your team members out in the field or on the factory floor can uncover and solve with this technology may prove to be more transformative at a business level than the complex parts and showstoppers you read about in the trade magazines. And empowering all of your colleagues with these 21st century thinking tools, communicating tools, boosts the brain power of your company as a whole to compete and shifts them into higher gears as a team. The guest interview with Joris Beals will be our first half adopting 3D printing guest. But before we hear that interview, I want to point out two additional segments for episode 19. At the end of the show, stick around after the theme music for our first 2020 Ultimaker Innovators List bonus segment featuring Charles Muir from Structured in Canada. And first up, we will race all the way to the other side of the globe to speak with my colleague Sao Chung application engineer for Ultimaker in Singapore. His story of how he and his team work with 3D printing champions within companies in the APAC region to establish and expand the use of 3D printing provides an excellent baseline to build on with the guest interviews. Without further ado, we will jump in. Uh, my name is Xiao Chong. I'm an application engineer in Ultimaker APAC. And my role is to basically work with uh, customers to identify applications suitable for additive manufacturing and uh, also to implement the new 3D printed solutions. Um, in Ultimaker, a lot of the customers that we see are in the industrial space or the FMB space. In the APEC region, we do see quite a lot of companies in the uh, semiconductor and uh, electronics industry. Uh, so what are some of the strategies that you're using uh, as an AE to help champions within these companies grow their awareness of the strengths and opportunities for 3D printing? I, I work with 3D printing champions to help them to understand the benefits and the gains uh, of 3D printing as a method for developing and creating applications. I inspire them with case studies in their industries on the high value 3D printed applications that they can create and work together with them to identify the applications in their companies we would then develop a business case and work out the cost and time, uh, cost and lead time savings or other types of uh, benefits. And uh, with this business case, they can showcase it to their management on the different strengths and opportunities of the AM and how they can take it further to scale it in the company. Um, so tell me a little bit more about how they you know, communicate internally. What are some of the specific strategies for taking those business cases and sharing them? Uh, many of these companies, they set up a, a, a 3D printing division internally uh, or something like a competence center. These few 3D printing champions, uh, they start a team and impart their 3D printing knowledge. And they also start to identify applications and, and use 3D printing to, to develop them. So they do this for all the various departments in the company. So in a sense, they are like creating a, a 3D printing department on their own. And then they also do lunch and learn sharings to spread the message within the company. And they showcase the benefits of using AM and then how the, the, the company can benefit as a whole, no matter which division you are in, which department you are in. Such competence centers start at one location, maybe the headquarters. They can then scale this to the other sites in the country or even to the other global sites that they have all over the world. For every company, they always want to be uh, more efficient, um, save costs, cut costs, and of course, um, generate more profits. So once they show a significant achievement or, or, or cost savings and time savings in the production line, more often than not, a lot of traction is given to them once they can do something like that. 
And from there, companies will start to look more into 3D printing and, and be a bit more serious into it. And then from there, uh, they can scale it. What are some examples of the shifting roles that you've seen for 3D printing within those companies that you've been working with? 3D printing used to play a, a huge role in uh, prototyping. And even today, of course, it, it still does. But I see more and more APEC companies are starting to use 3D printing uh, to create uh, manufacturing aids, such as jigs and fixtures, and uh, also end-use functional parts, and even parts to replace obsolete spare parts. There are more and more materials over the years. Because of that, there could be more applications that can be created with 3D printing. You, you have a, a few of these companies, Polymaker, Clarion, uh, they have created some flame retardant material. So this flame retardant material, of course, has also undergone certification and basically it doesn't burn so, so fast or it doesn't burn at all. So with such applications, a lot of uh, industries can start using them like the aerospace or the rail industry. Talking from an APEC perspective, there's a lot of uh, electronics companies and semiconductor industry. They, there's this material that is uh, ESD safe. So this is uh, electrostatic uh, discharge safe. So what, what companies usually have to do is, let's say they were to create a, a fixture for their PCB boards. They need to create it with a, a certain polymer or metal, and then they need to do a spray coating. Right now with this ESD material, they can print it out and start using it. So they eliminate one process that they have to outsource to, to, to do the spray coating. With, with all these improvements in materials, definitely more and more applications will be able to spring out. More and more industries can join and, and hop on this uh, 3D printing bandwagon. Thank you very much for joining on Talking Additive this week. Yeah, thank you as well, uh, Matt, uh, for inviting me to this show. And now we shift gears to our first guest interview for episode 19, Joris Peels. Uh, my name is Joris Peels. I'm the Vice President of uh, Consulting at Smart Tech Analysis. And I'm an executive editor at 3dprint.com. Where I wanted to go with this for our, our topic today on growing additive mm -hmm. within the company and field is that you've observed a lot of fields, companies, individuals catching the idea of what could be possible mm -hmm. with additive and then having mm -hmm. to navigate how to make it operational, get the business convinced that this is actually a benefit mm -hmm. to them. And you've done this in, in your writing for a decade, jumping in there a decade. and yeah. saying, hey, here's this field, here's this opportunity. Come on, folks, let's connect the dots. I consider you you know, quite an mm -hmm. expert in this, plus you pretty much goaded me into doing this topic. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about where you fit. Mm -hmm. So you're passionate, mm -hmm. if not obsessed with 3D printing. It pretty much pervades mm -hmm. every part of your life. How do things mm -hmm. fall into when you're a you know, consultant, strategic consultant, mm -hmm. when you're a journalist, mm -hmm. when you're just like mm -hmm. somebody showing up and hitting somebody over the head, get that additive in there. Help listeners mm -hmm. understand how you fill all these roles. Well, I've done different things depending on when, where and when, of course. So typically I've done a bunch of marketing and strategy and advice and competitive intelligence. I do things like due diligence for startups. I do research and due diligence for investors, for private equity investors. I help other types of active investors uh, in the stock market and stuff understand that the 3D printing opportunity and pitfalls. And then I also help firms in the business as well to grow, to launch products, market research for the landscape, the positioning of a machine. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff I'm involved in. We discussed three routes of entry that he has seen as typical for adoption of additive manufacturing. Top down, for example, a C-level team member reading about the advantages of AM in a business journal and advocating for additive at a executive level. 
or bottom-up with an individual champion bringing in 3D printing to help them with their role and scaling up the use as the solution starts to be a success. But the third option is a newer trend. So the other thing we're seeing, which is relatively new, is to see an, an implementation that's like a mid-level implementation that's more of a project-based implementation. Uh, so for example, you make tractors, right? Now all of a sudden someone's going to make uh, a ski tractor. It's going to be a version of your tractor that's going to be slightly modified for ski resorts. You're only going to sell 10 of them a year, right? They're, 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 but you need a couple of modifications with molds. You need a couple of modifications with some polymer parts and then some very simple uh, changes to the vehicle. And all of a sudden it's the ideal tractor for uh, taking care of your ski resort. High margin vehicle, new business line, and normally you would not be able to do this. You wouldn't be able to make these housings for the the controls of the thing. You wouldn't be able to make the outside moldings of this thing very expensively. You're only going to sell 20 of these things. In that kind of a mid-level implementation, we're seeing, well, instead of it being the future of your tractor company and everybody's betting the farm on it, we're saying, let's explore the technology. And we're not going to make engine components. We're not going to make the brakes. We're making like cosmetic or near functional parts. So that gives us a, a little bit of wiggle room. The plane is not going to crash. A key observation Joris shares is how important it is for teams to rally around a success in 3D printing within a company and broadcast it over internal communications. The biggest reason they are successful is because they're championed. And everybody always talks about this, but I see the people that are doing really well, they market the hell out of the people that are winning with additive in their company. And that's the way to do this. Have a concrete part with a concrete use case with a cost associated to it and a, a real good explanation, right? So the Cebu maintenance team 3D printed this clip to hang the, the fire extinguishers on, and now they don't have problems with the fire extinguishers falling down. And this is John, and John did this, right? He's the head of marketing at Cebu. And then push this information out to corporate comms. Push this information out to the corporate comms in the Philippines. Push this information out to the corporate comms in your headquarters. And make that person a champion. Can you get them to do a video about it? Can you get them to do good visuals on it? Right? A lot of people don't see it's their job. You're solving the challenge of additive. The challenge of additive is to get these guys to adopt this technology. And they're not going to do it if they're not inspired. And there's another really important reason to do this. If you can show that you can make clips, right? You're going to get a whole lot of people that are going to come to you with clips. If you can show housings, housings might seem super boring for additive, but a lot of the stuff we're doing is housings. It's just like a little plastic box around some stuff, some semi-improvised stuff or some stuff that has to stay in. But if you tell people, this is a box, they, they 3D modeled it in AutoCAD, it took them two days to make it and 20 bucks. And, and the smart person would say, hey, but it will melt or something like that, or it needs to be polycarbonate. Keep it realistic. Then all of a sudden, other people are going to come to you with an application that actually works. The cool thing about housing is that's something that's relatively easy to design. So there we're seeing the success factor is the person actively pitching this technology and these examples in an illustrative way in, in the internal columns, right? Also, a really big success factor is to, on your internet, to have a central file repository. Because what you'll have is you'll have official files, versions of these files. And you'll have a virtual place where everyone can go to and say, wait a minute, the guys in Cebu printed a clip. We've never thought of doing that. Wouldn't that be handy to hang up all the brooms? We're putting up 100 brooms a day, right? Oh, we can do a clip. Right? That's $2. The part ideally has pictures, ideally has the, the CAD file. This is very important, the CAD file there. You can also put the SEL file, 
or if you're all standardized, you could put a G code there as well. Ultimaker has a solution for this. You could use other uh, other kind of online solutions. It really depends on what kind of a business you are and what kind of parts you're doing. I would not do stuff outside of the house personally because you never know what people are going to end up doing with this technology. So it might end up being something very sensitive. What's important is to have this centralized, this single point of truth for all these files, to inspire people, to get them to print, and for them to understand what's going on and what's not going on. Try not to make it too onerous to put files on here. Try not to make it too difficult, but try to get pictures. And, and a good picture has scale in it. A good picture shows the product in use. And a good description shows you what it does and also what it doesn't do. Try get a review because maybe everyone's printing Jose's clip and Jose's clip sucks. And he's already designed a much, much longer one. Another key topic we discussed is essentially a 3D printer-specific variety of configuration drift, which can happen rapidly in shared-use scenarios, such as a corporate or academic makerspace. What we mean by this is a scenario where a lot of helpful individuals, or one individual uh, not paying much attention, can make slight adjustments and parameter tweaks without reporting these actions to anyone. And pretty soon, the 3D printer or slicing software or print bed calibration or adhesion solution has moved pretty far from either the default or intended setting, which can lead to a lot of unpredictable issues and malfunctions. But there is a fix for this, one that is aligned more with the modular unit of fabrication approach to professional desktop 3D printers and away from the heavy service professional model of older industrial AM equipment. Now, this is another thing that I would advise you to do is standardize on one printer with one set of settings. Ask them two weeks after to reset the printer. <laughs> this may seem strangely specific advice. <laughs> but, but, but ask them to reset the printer and all the settings in the software to the factory settings and then start off again. Now, the reason for that is that initially when you don't know Cura, the printer settings or whatever, people are going to be playing around and they're going to change things and they're going to change things into an undetermined way. I've seen people with like really weird retraction settings, for example, and it's like, why did you do this? I didn't know I did this. <laughs> you're like, well, this could explain a lot. <laughs> so having reset it after a couple of weeks of use, when they do understand what everything does, publish and spread universal profiles for all the materials you use. Right? I would not want to limit people in using materials. I would just have approved materials, which are the ones they'll end up buying, where you have the settings and where you spread them. And now with the error manager and the enclosures, you're going to have a lot of less environmental stuff, but do have a standard guide set up to how to do this, because most of the, the, the mistakes in your printer will be user-generated. <laughs> <laughs> the, the number one failure mode is the user. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, yeah. you have people sharing printers. There's that drift and state and, and settings, but also there's that opportunity for exchanging in-house policies and advice for how to, how to configure things. There's two problems with these procedure things. That everyone's in hacker mode. Yay. <laughs> right? Let's just play with the printers. And that causes a lot of like, failures that compound failures. And that's very problematic. And, and the user is responsible for this. The user is experimenting, having a lot of fun, which is wonderful, but they're changing the printer, right? They're, they're changing settings on it. They're changing ways. And you as an organization are not going to learn how to master these printers. You're just going to learn how to improvise on top of improvising. And the problem is there's going to be feedback and stuff that you do that 
isn't all going to be conducive. And one of the biggest failure modes, for example, in all desktop printer is that the user puts their fingerprints on the bed and that causes the part to not adhere. So the best way that I think that you should do this is in these manuals to do something which is called chef tech, or it's also called, there's a cookbook called The, the Family Meal, which is by Fran Adria's restaurant. The Family Meal is the, the, the restaurant meal that the employees of, of the restaurant eat. The Family Meal cookbook shows you exactly how many tomatoes. So it shows you two tomatoes. So you have a picture of two tomatoes. You have a picture of 100 grams of pasta. You have a picture of all the pepper and the salt and everything correctly portioned for that recipe. The next step, it shows you exactly how to cut the tomatoes, exactly what size. <laughs> and the next step, it shows you exactly how the meat has to be browned to when you put the wine in. So step by step, it's a picture of exactly what's going on at that moment, right? Now, that might seem a bit basic because you have smart people and engineers and all this other stuff, but this is the kind of level of stuff that you can make sure that you're not making mistakes to compound other mistakes later. This technology like ChefTech and these kinds of ways of working ensure that really large organizations like a Marriott can make the Marriott burger the same in, in, in Finland as in South Africa. Because everyone is working from this step-to-step -step thing. So for 3D printing, do an overhead shot with enough light showing you the printer. In the next picture, all the tools that you're going to need so that I can get them out before I won't have to like uh, look for them. And then step-by-step -step show you what the procedure is. It's not difficult to make. You can do it in PowerPoint, for example. You make a different PowerPoint deck for every training. It's not complicated. With this core bed adhesion problem, if people leave and they don't just clean the bed properly every build, you're going to have this environment where you don't exactly know what's going on. It might seem stupid. Oh, yeah, we're grown-ups. Come on. Yeah, but I've seen so many problems with this kind of stuff, with maintenance and printers dying and stuff. And It's just basic, but get basic right before you want to run. I think this is absolutely true. And in, in fact, I've been strongly advocating, particularly from work with a lot of our educators and our really large academic makerspaces all across the world. It is a very different thing one person, one printer versus shared use printers. And it has almost everything to do with what you're talking about. Everybody trying to be helpful and use what knowledge they have. And then maybe you have a tech who has a kind of evolving, but maybe largely cargo cult sense of what needs to be done to keep everything up and running. And so you get this condition of the machine so that you can't just bring a new person in and say, oh, run that machine. No, no, you need to run our way or these things will, will happen. I think what you're saying is really valid. Yeah, but think about it. like one really small thing. After we're done with the filament, we take the filament, we put it back in the container, an airtight container of some kind, and we put it in the correct order. That sounds stupid. It sounds maybe, hey, this isn't a high school library, guys. But imagine that you have to print that critical part for the board meeting, and that filament is brittle, and it breaks all the time, and you can't print it because some guy didn't put it back in the closet. It's these simple things that make the whole technology lose sense. Because if you teach them the basics on day one, you have the standard training thing, they'll absorb it, and then they'll go off the rails at least later on in the process. At least they'll know how to turn it on properly, and they'll know how to inject the, the SDE or whatever. Another topic we brought up is the sweet spot of when to introduce what materials to new users with an eye to helping users level up quickly. It just doesn't make sense if you're looking to add more users at your company who want to take advantage of 3D printing to expect them to spend years, months, or even weeks stumbling through the basics to become familiar with how to use materials. Joris's suggestion is a pretty firm one, but one that I have seen leveraged successfully at corporate and academic makerspaces before and would recommend. What I would like to do is 
Tell everyone that your office or your person or that engineer gets 10 rolls of filament of one material in one color. And that is the standard material you use. That's Swiss Air, white, whatever. Everyone uses that. It's a 208, whatever. These are all the settings. And that's the material. And you first use 10 rolls. And once you've used up all of your 10 rolls, then you switch to a different material. That might seem like a stupid thing to do, but you need to learn how to print parts consecutively, consistently, and, and, and to get them to, do, to work well. Because otherwise what people do is, like, oh, let's get a blue. Oh, let's try polypropylene. Oh, let's try HTP and all this. And they're not learning at all how to get these parts out correctly. You could do PLA. It's, it's fine. Do a white PLA or a natural PLA from the same vendor anywhere in the world and have them use it. If everyone uses 10 rolls of the same filament, they'll actually learn to print better. And they'll actually direct their energy at getting out better parts and, and making everything more reliable. Oh my God, it's purple. Super cool. Look at this, Bob. But instead of that, it's okay, look at this. The layer thickness is better at this one. Oh, look, this one's stronger because we tried the different infill. This one's, we actually printed it slower and now it's actually looking worse. What's going on? And that's when you learn about 3D printing. Learning about 3D printing is not trying to get a purple material to work in your printer. Especially in a corporate setting, you're probably going to gravitate towards a number of materials based upon your application or what you're doing. It's about getting that part out consistently all the time. It's not about probably not going to be using 60 different colors and you're probably not going to be using like 20 different materials. In the first weeks, yes, sure. But ultimately, you're probably going to coalesce around. You do flow stuff, so you do PPCU all the time. That's what you do. And and especially if we're making parts and stuff, then you're going to want to make it as standardized as possible. So try to do that. That's going to help you learn better. Now, the other thing uh, that I think is really important is to use the technology to, in a correct way, inspire people to actually come up with solutions for 3D printing that are workable. And this will save you a ton of time. It's also super fun to do. And that's to have the table. But let me set the stage a little bit. So when we talked about this summer, the way that you brought up this topic is you started saying in the middle of a discussion of something else, you're like, you got to have that table. You have to have that table table with those example parts. Like, why would you not have this table? You have this table and you can have the conversations. And then it flowed from there. So the idea behind the table, it comes from Enzo Ferrari. It's a pretty good reference. If you go to the Ferrari Museum in Marinello, you can see Enzo Ferrari's desk. And Enzo Ferrari was um, a very, very exacting individual to work with. He told his kids at one point, don't get too close to the drivers because the drivers die. <laughs> he wouldn't win the like manager of the year award. <laughs> but he was a visionary and he made everybody work really hard with his dream of making the best racing cars in the world. And he was a racing car guy. The road car thing was just something to finance his racing car hobby. The racing car was the passion. The road cars were just whatever. So every time something on one of these cars would break during a race, right? The disc brake would would shatter or the brake pad would fall off or whatever would happen. That part would be brought back to the office. And they would do an autopsy on that part, which is a brilliant thing to do, by the way. A lot of really high engineering application things, think uh, space and, and, and Formula One, they do this. Other people don't, right? They don't actually physically take the part and use it as the point of discussion. They'll do the CAD or whatever, uh, or some report. But in, in Ferrari, they use the part. And Enzo Ferrari would put these parts in his office. So the main furnishing in his office is you walk in, and on the central conference table, really big office, three meters by two meters, it's a really nice uh, little desk, and then there's a table in front of it, and there's some shelving. And the only thing really in the office is you, these broken race car parts everywhere. Some of whom you designed if you worked there, right? Some of whom were made by your colleagues. So if you go to Enzo for more budget, 
You're going to walk past that really nice, cool muffler design that didn't work out. You're going to walk past that one time you ended this guy's career, or worse at the time. We're talking at the time, it could have been, the consequences could have been worse. And you walk past all your failures. But it made them better because you had the tactile experience of, 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 of touching this part, of discussing it. Not a lot of people actually use 3D printing to implement 3D printing, which I think is, this is the inspiration for the table alongside the Enzo Ferrari story. So what you should do with the table, this is what I recommend, is to design uh, a keychain, some kind of thing, some kind of doohickey, right? 3D printing project 2000 Mirage left-handed or whatever like corporate speak you guys have, make a keychain, right? You can give it to your allies and the people in your organization to make them propagate 3D printing to the organization. Definitely make a desk toy to put on the boss's desk. If you go in the boss's room, CEO's room, and he's got this desk toy, that's a 3D printed toy, that's good. That's a conversation piece that I'm, as an ops guy, going to have with the CEO of the company about your project. You don't have to do this, but I would recommend you do this. <laughs> you could like your current job and want to never do anything else. Um, so you print out this keychain in all the various approved materials, right? So again, we want our approved materials list with the settings that we all know so that if a guy is not able to print it, we're able to say, wait a minute, is it the material? Is it the setting? And you want them to also know the cost, right? Then print the same keychain at a service, for example, and then put the cost there of that keychain in the different materials. You don't have to do a lot of colors. You just have to do the stuff that makes sense for you. You'll want a powder bed fusion part there. You'll want a PAGF part there, a glass-filled part for example, of PA-12, which is very common, you're probably going to end up using this stiffer kind of material at one point. If you work in aviation, you might want an Ultem kind of part there as well. You might want one of these peak kind of parts. In most cases, people are going to come in and then you can explain to them how expensive these parts are. So everyone will know what they look like and everyone will know how, how much they cost. What you can then also do is do a part that shows the minimum wall thickness. Don't do the minimum wall thickness, do the minimum approved wall thickness. If it's one millimeter, do 1.2 or something, because you're gonna save yourself a lot of time. And then you're also gonna do a part that shows the max buildable part size, especially for VAT polymerization. It's really important to not show the build volume because then at one point you're gonna, they're gonna be like, it doesn't work. <laughs> you're like, oh yeah. So show them the part that actually works on the printers you have, right? Rather than telling them, because they're gonna assume it's 30 by 30 and you can make a part that fills the whole thing. So show them what actually works, right? Also show them the cost of this part because they may be, they're going to be surprised because what I learned from 3D printing is you could always get the bigger pizza. <laughs> so they're going to probably be surprised that this part maybe sometimes the small parts will be $3 and then all of a sudden this bigger part is going to be 400 bucks. You're going to want some flexible materials. You're also going to want some post-finishing options there. So you show the thing. This is the keychain again, tumbled. This is the keychain again, uh, sandblasted or painted or whatever. Because people are going to come to you saying they want the thing smoother. And you don't want them to try vapor smoothing by themselves because that's not a good idea. One common thing that people always forget is you can do casting, right? A lost wax casting, for example, does actually work. Even PLA. And now even there's some casting materials, right? If you have SLA, you should have something about casting. And also about, for example, some vacuum forming things, because that could be interesting as well. Uh, and also, like my favorite one is to make the positive using a material extrusion, for example, and then make a mold out of silicone. Because there is going to be somebody that's going to come to you for a hard-wearing, medically approved, whatever, uh, rubbery part, and we just are not really good at that as an industry. So don't forget that there are other ways to get to your solution. And the beautiful thing is you will have physically a table, which will show you all the different materials, their prices, and some keywords. It doesn't have to be everything, right? You should have 
the MSDS somewhere on your on your intranet. You should have an explanation of when to use PPSU and when to use Ultem. You should give people an idea that Peak is a complete nightmare to print. You should never use it. The, these kind of things should live somewhere else. You should then have this table show the different types of conditions of this material. Now, what you can then also do is print your success stories, of course. right? The guys from Cebu, you want to have that clip there, and you want to have everything that you did that, that was successful. What's also super nice, and especially for like the marketing folk and all this stuff, is to show iterations of parts. So, so there's one part, and then five versions of it. This one was too heavy. This one was too expensive. This one broke. And they can then help your entire story of, of how this 3D printing technology can help you iterate and come up with better solutions. These things can be illustrative. They can show, hey, look here, what he did was he made this part too thin, right? Here, what he did is he made this part too, too, too big, and then it ended up being 30 bucks. That kind of simple stuff. Also, remember to have some parts without the top layer. So you can see in and you can see the different infill. As long as you're going to spend a lot of your time explaining infill to people. And you can just show them the infill patterns. Have some parts printed out at 80, 90% or 100%. Have you ever done this, Lola? It's really cool. <laughs> They're really stiff and stuff. It's really nice. And show also constraints. Show a part that melted. Show a part that caught fire. That kind of thing. And then you'll have a table or a conference table or a part where you show this graveyard of ideas and a graveyard of solutions that didn't work. And also you inspire people, but you inspire them in the right way. It's the way to inspire them with, with the real, right? As opposed to them either thinking that it's like a kid's toy or that it can solve everything. <laughs> so, so you have, you have the reality is somewhere in the middle there, and I think the table to me is the most effective tool to, to making that happen. And you can internationalize this by making pictures of all these things, and then using this, putting all of that on your your, your file repository, and also getting just each team to print out these parts. The beautiful thing about this, of course, is this is like a final exam class, and, and did you do everything properly? All right, because if you have to print out the polyprop and the, and the nylon and all the stuff, you're going to have to try and figure out how to do this. All right, so it's a nice kind of way for them to set up the lab and at least dial in each of the materials so they can print the whistle or whatever the hell you want them to print. And it's really easy pass-fail because the thing will look terrible if you, don't, if you don't do it properly like PA, for example, or it just won't work. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. This is a critical time for industry to adopt 3D printing within aspects of manufacturing processes, safety, and efficiency as a part of stabilizing and strengthening this field in the new global economy. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs, machines, and teams all across the world that have remained open and fully operational even during these complicated times. Enjoy talking additive? We'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. We also encourage you to explore past episodes with some of our favorite Ultimaker Innovator List guests. We will now return to episode 19 to speak with Matthew Forrester from L'Oreal. So my name is Matthew Forrester and I'm working on the technical deployment of additive manufacturing within L'Oreal. As a follow-up from our our, our call back last year, which was an amazing interview. One of the sections that we had talked about, and I mentioned that I wanted to explore it again, that question of how you internally spread the word to help more stakeholders see the value of 3D printing and and bring them in and get them using it. You mentioned several projects, but I was wondering if you might share in a succinct few minutes your take on your program to introduce 
additive and, and the current state of it rolling out and inspiring people. Why did you consider it a key challenge to make sure to spread the word of this technology beyond your unit to make sure more of L'Oreal knew about additive and could see the benefit? It's a technology which is safe, which is accessible, which is the price point is easy for us to play with. So we can test and learn. We can we can try things. We can experiment. In some of our places, they've started taking printers apart and modifying them to do specific needs. And if it does break, it's it's not too much of a problem. We can replace parts. So it's very accessible, but the gains that it brings are just enormous. The idea is, and always has been, to push for, from my side to give everyone access to these tools and tell them what they can do with them, but not what they should do with them. And then they can bring their own ideas in once they can see the potential of these machines and start putting their own spin on it. But we need to share this information now because if we don't, then people are, are working within their bubbles and and that would be a real shame because everyone has so much to bring and that's part of the, the work which has been really hard actually is, is getting people out of these bubbles and sharing their ideas, which are amazing and they're very happy with their ideas, making sure that other people can profit from them. I'd love to to get some thoughts from you about a couple of the real on-the-ground tactics that you have tried for everything from, if you want to talk about the canteen project, which I thought was really cool, to the the example tables and and how you use that to celebrate what had been done and, and inspire ideas. Yeah, I think really putting it in front of people's noses is the, is the most efficient way of doing it. So speaking to people, finding out what their problems are, and then making a trial part or making three or showing them that, for example, generally I would make a part with a three millimeter hole in, but now I've done one with a 2.5, a 2.7, a three millimeter, 3.2 and a 3.5. Choose the one which works the best. And then, okay, so it's this one. So instead of making five parts over a week, I've made five parts in a day and you've already got the right result. So it's showing people what the machines are capable of which is not at all obvious it does become obvious once you've once you've used them for a while but if you haven't used them before it's it's not obvious that you can change materials on the same layer and make parts of a a part rigid and a part soft and a part resistant to abrasion while the other part is super abrasive so it can hook onto something so it's showing people this giving them samples of the material helping them with their designs We've done a lot of training on site, so really going there and trying to understand what the dreams, without trying to push it too far, but saying what what you want to do, what would be the ideal part, and then is this technology going to help you achieve that? And it's certainly not always 100% yes. There's a lot of barriers as well about 3D printing where people get too passionate about it and they say, oh, you know, I'm going to make this garage out out of 3d printing whereas using bricks would definitely be a better technology to to make a garage so it, you have to temper the fires of the passionate makers while at the same time sharing knowledge with with the people who are learning about the the technology and all at the same time we're sharing with everyone and and it lights a fire in some people and other people aren't so bothered about it so we try and make it as accessible as possible that's why we put 3D printers inside the, the cafeterias so that people walk past and, and they can see the printer working. 
they have a little QR code they can scan and then it, it's got a training module on there so they can use it. But if people wanted, so during the COVID crisis, if people wanted an ear saver to stop the, the masks hurting their ears, it was preloaded on the printer and they would just press a button and it would print one in five minutes while they had their coffee. So that's the first step is saying, okay, so I can print something just from a magazine. Then saying, okay, so I can go and get someone else's 3D file off the internet and I can search for exactly the 3D file that I want and I can print it. And then I can draw, I can manipulate, I can change dimensions and I can product design. So you told a couple of stories about folks who were working on the line, seeing things that uh, had never occurred to you as industrial engineers and that it was really inspiring to you. If you have a specific uh, story like that, it would be really great to have one. One of the parts which really, really, really impressed me was it, it's a part which transfers bottles around a, a filling line. Uh, and every time we change change the filling line, we have to change these parts as well. This is for Harold, who, who designed this. One of the engineers came up with the idea of, of integrating two parts into one with a movement. So this is a real complex understanding of, of 3D printing that we can build mechanisms into a solid part as it's being fabricated. And so now as we turn over the part, it, it changes shape using a mechanism which is integrated into the parts. You have to have a you have to have real foresight on, on thinking what your final goal is and then work back from that to develop a, a 3D part, which traditionally you wouldn't do because you would know that at some point along the road you would be blocked by one of the technologies. Whereas now we know we can do it, it needs to be analyzed to see if it's cost effective or time effective. But still, we know that nearly every form and, and every function can be realized. We just need to check if it's the right way of doing it. Uh, one key question for the COVID and post-COVID era, what has changed about these strategies? And are there some exciting developments that you think will persist? I think that people have realized real limitations of traditional supply chains, especially for manufacturing. And so there's a general air of, of, of panic within all industries at the moment uh, because we're running on a knife edge between being able to supply the consumers and and having out of stock so there's this high stress level at the moment and the door is being open to additive manufacturing a lot wider than it was a year ago at least for people to try there everyone's looking for the the silver bullet which can get rid of this problem that, that everybody is facing at the moment so there's certainly a lot more opportunity at least to to try we have a project ongoing now with all of our machine suppliers who we're working with to try and upskill them share everything that we've learned within the industry and then and feed it back to them so that they can work better and more efficiently with us using uh, using additive manufacturing if it brings again to them and so that's what we're trialing out now but this is this kind of integration of everybody in the project team is, is something which has to be done now but was maybe not such a priority a year ago one of the things that, that you do that is definitely unique to industry and maybe represents how industry is changing is that you do a lot of cross uh, industry collaboration to other fields and other experts and really do a lot of knowledge sharing. W would love to hear some of the progress and thoughts you have in, in that space. Yeah, it's great to be working with a technology which is one of the new children of the agile movement. And with that comes the maker mindset 
and comes the, the open source idea of saying, okay, I've got a great idea. Now I share it out to everybody else and maybe they will then share theirs, their ideas back to me, which is something which we were traditionally not very good at. And then over the last five years, we've seen a massive culture shift within the company with some great results. Really great to be sharing things out. And I, I have at least a meeting every day with somebody who isn't within L'Oreal to speak to them about their feedback on a type of software they've been using or what do they think of this machine or I can say hey I've just finished my material trial on this material and so I'm, I'm sharing it with you and 50-60% of the information won't be useful to me at that time but when I do need it these guys have got the the whole database ready and I know who to go to and I know who's the expert in that in that domain so I can go and get it whereas traditionally I would then say okay I've got a problem sit down build a research team, build a project team, start doing the research, and then however much time later, we would start getting the first results out. Whereas it's almost next day now that we're getting at least some feedback or at least some guidance if it's a good idea, a bad idea, or which people I can contact. So it's a massive accelerator. Would you like to talk about developments you've seen with your own supply chain? We're in a big trial phase at the moment. It's in a new way of working and that we're opening up our, our factory lines uh, to be used as test centers. So we're producing, but also we're, we do have enough confidence with the technology that it's not going to endanger our line or our products. We can quickly run tests for each type of, of part which we're going to produce for a line with our suppliers. So we're producing the parts with them they're coming into the plants to see what's happening and to see if it's a it's success or, or, or a failure. And if it does fail, why is, why is it failing? Is it the design? Is it the material? Is it because 3D printing isn't adapted for that? And then we're going through the cost analysis, time analysis with them as, as well. But this way of working, is, it's new as well. It's Traditionally, it's you brief, they work, then you analyze the work which has been done. Whereas the co-construction, the creation of teams, which are not just internal, is is new and is an incredibly powerful tool. And by extension, where, where do you see industry going with some of these new strategies uh, in the future? I think there's a lot of different ways. It could go towards uh, decentralization. It could go towards production within people's own homes. It could. There's lots of different paths which are opening up, which which didn't exist before. I think we're going to go to a slightly more of a decentralization and certainly the idea of of pushing onto these these new technologies to reduce our environmental impact is something that that hopefully everyone is working on as strongly as we are, because I think it's, uh, it's super important. And something which I think we will hopefully see in the future as well is resource sharing between partners. I would like to, to see developing in the next 10 years is factories which are, are not just producing for one owner, but producing for the town in which they're situated and producing parts which can be across lots of different industries, uh, depending on what the, the demand is for that day, but reducing waste, reducing transport in this way. This is a, a long-term vision, but we have to dream. That's an amazing dream. I think Ultimaker, on our part, we're hoping that these ways, that new ways of making things and collaborating, communicating about them will lead to 
practices that are of benefit to everybody, a positive step forward. So it's really exciting to hear your vision and see you deploying it with such focus and making strong progress forward, even in the face of complicated times, if you will. (laughs) Thank you very much, Matt. I'm glad I could help. We hope that you have enjoyed our 19th episode for the Talking Additive Podcast, Adopting 3D Printing Within Your Organization. Stick around after the theme music for our first 2020 Ultimaker Innovator List bonus segment featuring Charles Muir from Structured in Canada. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. In two weeks, we will return with episode 20, our final episode for season two, featuring Guillermo Malantoni and the Autodesk team to discuss Tinkercad Fusion 360 and the intermeshing relationship between CAD and 3D printing for learners, designers, and engineers alike. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and listen to the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thank you again to Sal Chun from Ultimaker, Joris Peels, and Matthew Forrester for joining us for episode 19. Our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos. Music and episode sound mix by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. Psst, wait. Don't leave yet. In Talking Additive episode 18, we introduced a recent project that is near and dear to our hearts, the 2020 Ultimaker Innovator List. If you haven't yet had a chance to explore this online project, head over to ultimaker.com forward slash innovators to see the list that we unveiled on December 15th, 2020. This project will be an ongoing Ultimaker-wide effort to put the spotlight on individuals or groups across the world who we believe are using 3D printing to transform the way people work, think, and live. Throughout the year, we will return to this list to share more of these 2020 Innovators interviews as we advance our way towards the launch of our 2021 Innovators list at the end of the year. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome Charles Muir from Structured in Toronto, Canada. He and his team have been close allies of ours since they first launched their 3D printer-driven Discovery Paste Extruder system back in 2014 that they fully embedded with our 3D printing hardware and software back in 2016. Charles will share today some details about their latest project, the Injector, which is already turning a lot of heads by bringing capabilities to work with liquid rubber-type materials right to the desktop for industrial labs and product teams worldwide. I am the co-founder and CEO of Structured Printing. The idea started a long time ago out of research. We built this into a company and customers are often pleasantly surprised about what our tech can do. To me, innovation means pushing the boundaries. It means trying something that could very likely fail, but could also be just bonkers successful. When you pursue innovation, it really transforms the world. So I first got my start in 3D printing using a nano droplet dispenser. And uh, it was designed to basically pick up material from one XY position and deposit it into another. That research idea, the methodology of working around that type of machine stayed with me. I 
started to realize that, hey, the 3D printing market is taking off and lots of people are working with plastic materials, but these are the materials I'm researching. They're liquid type materials, but then they dry into some form that's still very useful. And then in 2007 for my PhD project, I built a custom 3D printer using a desktop CNC and strapping a syringe to it and basically dispensing liquid materials at that point. We, we do something that is very unique and specific in the 3D printing market in terms of working with liquid rubber materials, especially. That's a very challenging area. And we've also tried to do it with a bit of a research slant and a bit of the industrial manufacturing slant, which is where we're headed. When Structured started, we began as an idea to uh, help researchers do what we did with a hacked kind of a system. So make a standard system, and then now you can replicate results. Uh, very important in R&D. And as we've grown, though, we've learned more about what industrial customers want to do with this kind of technology and where the market is really heading. That's where we've developed our new product, the injector for desktop injection molding. We use 3D printing in several ways. One way is actually to manufacture parts for our product. It's uh, very economical to iterate designs and make sure that we get the design right before we're actually shipping it to a customer. So we can actually test how things go together and explore different ways to improve the designs versus just something that initially makes sense versus something that is even better. And then secondarily, we, we love being able to work with the kinds of materials that our customers would ultimately use with our products. So whether it's uh, research grade hydrogels or elastomers for direct printing, or whether it's materials for desktop injection molding, those have actually been great to explore. We haven't used them yet in our own products, but we certainly eat our own dog food and test those out to make sure that everything works the way that we're promising. The injector is a desktop injection molding platform, and it is designed to handle liquid materials very well. With 3D printing, printing with plastic materials, metal materials, all of that has become very proven in the market. Printers handle those materials very well. But an unproven frontier still is with liquid rubber materials, where it's just very challenging on the engineering side to make those work in the same type of hardware platform. So we thought, how can we still address what our customers want to do? And additive manufacturing has a lot of value. Where does it really fit in? So we thought about a first principles approach that injection molding is commonly what's used for these kinds of materials. It's a tried and true technology is there a way to bridge that gap and make injection molding a bit more accessible on the desktop? As we started working through the workflow of what this might look like, that's where the injector really was born. The idea is you can 3D print a mold. It can be a clamshell mold. It can be a dissolvable mold. It can be a multi-material type of mold and so on. And then the injector handles what we do well, which is mixing liquid rubber materials in given ratios that can be programmed and injecting the volume needed for the mold, which can also be programmed. And when you start adding the programming aspect to all of this, now this becomes a little less magical and a bit more turnkey for people to be able to use. You don't have to be a wizard now to then make a final product using all of these different advanced materials in an additive manufacturing process. There's a lot of opportunity for adoption for this kind of technology, because now that 
the 3D printer has solved the problem for desktop manufacturing when it comes to thermoplastic type materials. We've solved the problem for desktop manufacturing for liquid rubber type materials. And you marry the two together, now you've got a true factory on the desktop. So that's what we see really accelerating over the next couple of years. We think that the revolution is continuing to happen with additive. To learn more about Charles Muir and the Structured team, visit them online at structured.io. And while it isn't pronounced in a special way, as I learned, that E-D at the end of their URL is written as a number three and the letter D, because nerds. Thank you very much for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.